Well, hey, good morning and happy Mother's Day, right? Are we excited about our moms today? Heck yeah. Seriously, so, so excited to be able to honor and celebrate the women and the mothers in our community, in our church. Listen, what you guys do is a gift from God, and I am absolutely convinced um, what you do, especially within our homes, has a tremendous kingdom impact. So thank you, honored to be able to celebrate you. But listen, we are also aware that in a community and a church like ours, there are some women who would love to have the gift and would love to have the privilege of being a mother, but right now are struggling to get pregnant and struggling with fertility. And so what we're gonna do here in a moment is we're gonna go to the Lord in prayer and we are gonna celebrate and thank God for our mothers, but we are also gonna pray for women and for families who would love nothing more than a son and a daughter. And, and I'll share this, about a year ago, we prayed near this exact same uh, time and there was a family in our church that struggled with fertility. Shortly thereafter, they got pregnant and their little girl is doing absolutely fine. Here at Crosspoint, we believe prayer changes things and all in a moment, God can give more than we could ever ask for imagine. And so we're gonna, we're gonna remember that as we go to him in prayer right now. So let's do that. Uh, dear God, we are just so thankful, again, for the women in our community, for, uh, the, for the mothers in our church. God, the work that you do through them has such a tremendous impact. So God, would we honor them and serve them and love them well today? And God, I also wanna pray uh, for those people who maybe this is the first Mother's Day without their mom or without their grandmother or whoever might have uh, played a significant role in their life. God, would you give comfort would you give peace to those people? And then finally, God, we pray that you would give sons and daughters to, to families who are trying to get pregnant, God, that you would um, bless these homes so that as sons and daughters are born, God, that they would be the next generation of your church, that they would be the next generation of believers sharing the hope of the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it, God. We, we ask for you to move in this way. We love you so much, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. All right, well, hey, if we have not had an opportunity to meet, my name is Lane Vrooman. I work as the Cartersville campus pastor, but I am soon to be the Rome campus pastor. Shout out to Rome. I love you guys dearly. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited too. I'm excited too. And listen, on that note, I did just kind of want to briefly touch on what James shared last week, and that's the fact of what we've been dis discussing for a while and what my family feels like God has put on our hearts is to plant another Crosspoint City Church in the years to come. But what we know, what's next in our journey immediately is that God is calling our family to the city of Rome to love them, to serve them, and to share the hope of the gospel with them. But before I left Cartersville and why I had an opportunity, why I'm standing on this stage, I just wanted to say thank you to each and every one of you. You see, when I came to Cross Point City Church, I was a 29-year-old intern. Now, that probably sounds as weird as it felt, right? <laughs> because, I mean, seriously, I'm sitting with people in their late teens, early 20s, even my, my, my later 20s, and, and I am 
I have no idea what vocational ministry looks like. And here was my biggest fear, that people were gonna see me for who I truly was. Someone who was afraid, someone who was full of fear, someone who was insecure, someone who was dealing with 10 years of shame and guilt and condemnation because of my addiction to drugs and alcohol, but never once, Never once was I rejected by you. I was welcomed in as a brother in Christ and I was loved and I was supported and I was championed and I was given an opportunity to explore the calling that God put on my life to be able to explore who I was as a leader, who I was as, as a teacher and as a preacher, but most importantly, I was given an opportunity to pastor. Many of you, thank you, thank you, appreciate it. Many of you have invited me into the darkest moments of your life, moments of pain and, and loss, moments of wrestling with addiction, moments of marital strife, whatever it was, and the fact that you invited me to come alongside you and to, hair, uh, to help bear some of that weight is the greatest honor in my entire life, and so thank you for your investment in me. And, and while, while I'm speaking on this, I wanna say one more thing because I think it matters. I think that this is someone uh, sitting here in this room, someone who is joining us in Rome or Adairsville, if you are stuck, if you are stuck in addiction, if you are stuck in sin, I just wanna say God has created you for something far greater. And you on your own cannot get yourself unstuck. You don't have the strength to do it, but through God's Holy Spirit in you, he can do more in you than you could ever ask or imagine. So listen, step out in faith, walk in obedience, and watch what the Lord does in and through your life. If he's done it with a guy like me, he can do it for any and every person on this earth. All right, thank you, so kind. I love the applause, thank you. No, listen, I, I, I greatly appreciate it. I greatly appreciate all of you. And, and right now we're gonna jump into our text. Um, today we're gonna be in uh, Revelation chapter two, uh, verses 12 through 17. So over the last several weeks, we have been looking at the book of Revelation. Not revelations, but revelation, okay? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ himself given to the apostle John. And here's the main thrust, the main point of the entire book of Revelation is that Jesus Christ is fully glorified. He is ruling and reigning in heaven. And one day he is gonna come back to earth to restore and to redeem all things. That is the point of Revelation. And at the beginning of this book, we see that Jesus is addressing seven, uh, seven different churches in the, in the area of Asia Minor, okay? This is modern day Turkey. And here's the reason why Jesus is addressing them. It's that they needed encouragement. They needed to be strengthened. They needed to be emboldened because they were under heavy persecution. They were under um, uh, denial from friends and family members, and there was constantly this push and pull from culture to compromise, to become more like the sinful 
broken world around them. And so Jesus has a very specific message for each and every church. And over the last couple of weeks, we have looked at letters written to Ephesus. We have uh, looked at letter, a letter written to Smyrna. And this week, we are looking at a letter written to the church of Pergamum. Now, the, the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna, these were large port cities, okay? So there was a ton of commerce, a ton of wealth, a ton of business. This is not the case with the city of Pergamum, but what they lack in wealth and commerce, they make up for it in historical richness. Now, I don't have time to get into all of the different attributes and, and, the, and the significance around history in this city, but the most important is that they had the world's largest library. They had a library with over 200,000 volumes of books uh, given to Cleopatra. So you can imagine when you have the world's largest library, you have a ton of people going to check this thing out, but especially people in the area of academia, right? Those uh, students, those people that wanted to get further education. And so the city of Pergamum was huge in the area of authorship and language arts, and it's actually where parchment paper was originated from, right? This thing that had an impact on the rest of the world. So here you have historical richness, you've got academia and education, and then on top of all of it, this is an absolute religious hotbed. Whatever type of religion you can imagine, it pretty much existed here in the city of Pergamum. When I was thinking about this, it kind of made me think like uh, the six flags of religion. And I don't know if, if, if six flags means much to you. To me, I, I love six flags. I think it's a ton of fun. I'm 35 years old and I've had a season pass to six flags for over two decades. Now, I don't know if that's awesome or sad, but it is what it is. But look, here's my point, okay? You go into Six Flags and you got a ton of options, right? You can go to, to, to Gotham City, right, where the Batman is, or you can go to the Looney Tunes area, or you can go to like the country western spot or the Superman ride in his whole city. I don't actually know what that city is called. But my point is, is you can go in and have whatever type of experience you want. Well, the same is true in the city of Pergamum. The worship of different gods and goddesses was huge there, and they actually had four large temples, but the one that was most significant was one to a Greek god by the name of Escapulos. Now, Escapulos was the god of healing and medicine, and they actually had a, a, a school of medicine in the temple itself. And the sign for Escapulos would be a serpent wrapped around a staff. Now, this is the same image that you see on hospitals and, and, and doctor's buildings across the world here to this day. On top of that, escapulos is where we get the, uh, excuse me, the English word scalpel. Okay, so again, the religion and, and, and this, this area had such a significance over 2,000 years ago, except it's still rippling out to us here in the 21st century. But on top of all of the worship of these Greek gods and goddesses, you had emperor worship, which was an absolute expectation. This was a huge part of their culture, is that you worshiped Caesar as God. And again, it wasn't a suggestion, this was a commandment. So in all of these different 
cultural and societal crosswinds, education, history, religion, we find ourselves with the church of Pergamum. So what does Jesus have to say to the church? With that, let's go ahead and jump in to verse 12. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So at the beginning of all of these letters, it's addressed to an angel of the church. This angel, Greek word angelos, means messenger, okay? So this is uh, really addressing the pastor of the church. And again, in all of these letters, Jesus is identifying himself. He's giving himself a title. In this letter, he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is a, a picture of God's justice, which is found in the word of God, right? The sharp two-edged sword is scripture. It is the Bible. It has the power and it has the authority to separate the believer, the true follower of Christ, from the person who is going to bend and accommodate and, and, and give in to culture and the world. That is how God judges, by his absolute truth found in the word of God. But you can imagine how a city of Pergamum would respond to something like absolute truth, right? Because they, they could figure out their own truths, right? There was not one God, there was multiple gods. So again, truth wasn't absolute. It was whatever you wanted to pursue, whatever you felt to be true, and whatever their true God would be, God or gods. Now, does that sound familiar at all? That, like, that is who we are as a culture and as a society. Many people take the worldview of something called relativism. Okay, relativism means that there is no absolute truth, that truth is fluid, right? It's completely subjective. It depends on somebody's experience, on their context, on their society. And so it's up to the individual to decide, well, what is my value? What is my worth? What is my identity, right? People have to figure those things out for themselves. And we hear this kind of language used in our culture all of the time. Hey, live your truth. Follow your heart, right? I mean, we are, we are subscribing people to this. In fact, we've had laws and regulations put into place to further empower and give people the freedom to live out their own unique truth. So then people, if they're, if they're given exactly what they want, then they have to be thriving, right? No, the exact opposite is true. Since 2010, our suicide rates have increased by 30%. In between the ages of 10 and 36, suicide is the second leading cause of death. That's roughly 46,000 deaths a year. That's one suicide every 11 seconds. On top of that, you have depression, anxiety, mental and emotional illness at historic levels. Well, why is that? Because there is absolute truth. And it's the absolute truth that we find in God's word, right? That all of us, we are created in the image of God and we have been designed to experience a relationship with him except sin came into our world, it broke this relationship, so Jesus came in and paid the penalty for our sin 
so that this relationship with our God could be restored and so that we might have the hope of salvation. That is absolute truth. That is what we bank our lives and our eternities on. And that is how God is going, specifically Jesus is going to judge the world. Let's pick up in verse 13. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus is saying in the beginning of this text, look, I know where you dwell, I see you. I see your persecution, I have not forgotten you. I know what you are going through, right? And not only does he see it, but he cares deeply about what the church of Pergamum is going through. The same is true with us. Our God is a God of compassion and love, and we are not forgotten. He sees us, he knows what we are going through, and he cares deeply about it. But the language here is interesting. He says, I know where you dwell. Now, normally, in, in, in the Greek word that is used for dwell in the New Testament means like a temporary dwelling, right? It means kind of like you're passing through like you would if you were a pilgrim or a sojourner. But here, this word for dwell means a permanent home, an anchor, right? So what Jesus is calling the church to do is to stay is to remain steadfast in the middle of the sin, in the middle of the brokenness, in the middle of the demonic activity, you are to stay and to hold fast onto the hope that you have and the faith that you have. The same is true with us as believers, right? We are called to our culture and in our society in which we exist, we are not called to leave and, and kind of bounce out and have a holy huddle where we all just hang out with other Christians and talk about Jesus. No, we're called to mission in the middle of the brokenness and the darkness of our world. Look at who Jesus was. He didn't leave, he came to it and took on flesh and dwelt among us so that we would have the hope of salvation. And the same is true with us. See, what's amazing about the church in Pergamum is that everything going on, the sin and the brokenness and Satan's influence, it, it wasn't just small or minor, right? This isn't saying that Satan kind of has a seat, Satan kind of has a say. No, no, it says that, see, uh, that, that this is Satan's throne, right? He's got power, he's got authority. And so what we know is that Jesus Christ, once and for all, defeated sin, death, and the enemy on the cross for all time. Hands down, that is the truth. That is the absolute truth. However, on this side of eternity, Satan still has an influence. He still has a power. We see that all around us. We see communities broken with sin. We see addiction ravaging our, our, our community. Right? We see homes broken with adultery, with abandonment, with divorce. Like The enemy is very active right where we live in the same way of the church of, of Pergamum. So what are we to do? Well, we follow this church's example. We hold fast to the name of Christ. We remember the hope that we have even in the middle of the darkness and the brokenness and the sin in which we exist. And here is when we hear about Antipas. 
Okay, we don't have much historical documentation about who Antipas was. Some people suggest that he was an elder at the church. Uh, some scholars think that he could have been the pastor. But either way, what we know is that Antipas lost his life because his faith in Jesus. He was martyred. See, we have to remember the context in which we're reading about in Pergamum was the expectation that you would worship Caesar as God. It was an expectation. You had to do it. And yet Antipas said, no, 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 I will bow my knee to no other God except for King Jesus. And if it costs me my life, take it. He said, love what James said last week. He said that Jesus is worth more than just living for. He's worth dying for. Our faith is costly, and this is certainly true in the city of Pergamum and for that church. So here we are in our text. We see that Jesus is recognizing, saying, hey, Pergamum, I see you. I care about what you're going through, and good job, like encourages the fact that they are faithful but we're about to see a shift in the text. It's almost like if you ever had a conversation and everything's good, it's like back and forth and you're talking and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody says, hey, can I be honest with you? Or, or I say this out of love or my very favorite, hey, no offense, but, right? You're like, oh, this sucks. You're totally about to offend me, right? Well, this is, this is kind of like, this is kind of the shift and the transition that we are seeing in the text itself, it's gonna go to an encouragement, to an indictment for the church in Pergamum. Let's pick up in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, so let's make a little bit of sense out of this text. So who is Balaam? All right, well, Balaam is an Old Testament figure that got the nation of Israel to compromise on their morality. You see, the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, were wandering for a long time through the wilderness to get to this promised land, the land of Canaan. Well, on this journey, they passed by a city called Moab. Well, the king of Moab is Balak, and Balak wanted to take out the nation of Israel. So Balak hires Balaam because Balaam has been given the gift of prophecy, and so he hires him to speak curses over the nation of Israel. But here's what's funny. Every time Balaam tries to utter a curse over the nation, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he actually ends up delivering a blessing for the people, right? So he is actually fortifying, he is making stronger the nation of Israel. Another reminder that what the enemy means for evil, God uses for good. So Balaam switches tactics. He moves on from curses. And he says, well, I'll just get the nation to compromise. And it says that he enticed the sons of Israel to eat food sacrificed to idols. So the Moabites would sacrifice to their false gods, to their idols, and they would burn a portion of the animal. Right, but that left the remainder of the animal in which they would eat. And so they gave this food to the Israelites, thus bringing sin and defilement and unholiness 
onto and into their body. On top of that, they fell into sexual sin. Balaam encouraged the the Moabite women to go to seduce the men of Israel. They slept with them, they had sex, and because of this sexual immorality, God dealt with them in a very harsh way. Over 24,000 Israelites were killed because they were compromised and gave in to sin. So here in our text, we've got this message of, of compromise connected to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know what all the Nicolaitans were teaching. We don't know the doctrine, but what we do know is they were false teachers that existed within the church and were getting the people to compromise, to, to, to say that holiness doesn't truly matter. Now, compromise comes at a high cost and have, can have destructive consequences. Now, as as my family has felt the call to go into the city of Rome, um, we think that that we need to be a part of the community, that we need to live in the community, that we need to do life with the people, that we need to support local businesses. So all that to say is we are looking at moving our home into the city of Rome. And so we've started to look at houses. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar what's going on with the housing market right now, but it, it, I mean, it is literally insane, okay? And I could rant on that, but I won't. I'll, I'll leave it there. So we're looking at houses, and I'm talking to my wife, Inga, and I'm like, look, babe, we don't need, we don't need much, right? We don't need a big house. We don't need, you know, all this stuff. Let's, let's aim small. Right, that's probably always a a bad idea. But anyway, let's aim small. Let's look at the lower kind of spectrum of homes and houses in Rome. And so that's exactly what we did. Um, We looked at at, at houses and a lot of them were rough. Like they were were really bad. Uh, But there was one house, one house that we saw and I was thinking this, this could work. Okay, and so, you know, on the outside, everything's looking pretty good. I'm looking at the printout you know, for the house and the information about it. And it says that it was built in 1928. And I'm thinking, oh, that's, that could be a problem, right? And I know, I know there's like, I know there's a lot of dudes here at Crosspoint that are like, oh yeah, good for you, man, a fixer upper, right? But there, I I don't need to be anywhere near a fixer upper. There is no fixer upper in me at all. Like I have to pay someone to do absolutely everything. But I'm still digging this idea, right? I mean, the, the house is cheap, so we go in, and the house, like, it's, it's kinda cute. Like, I hate to even, like, that's the best way I could describe it. Now, it's 100 years old, so there's, like, cracks in the foundation, and the floor feels a little bit, like, you know at the carnival when you go into a fun house and, like, the tunnels kinda, so, like, you're, it's doing a little bit of that, but you're like, but still, I'm pitching myself, and I can see my wife's even, you know, thinking, this, this could have potential. So I go around the back of the house and notice that in the wood siding, there's dry rot to the point where you can see inside the house. And I'm just thinking, well, that's just superficial. You know, we'll, we'll deal with that. So I go back, back in the house, into the master bedroom, and I open the door to go into what I think is the master bathroom. And I, 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 don't let, I don't have words to describe what I saw. Like just complete desolation. Like there was a toilet 
in the bathroom, but it was completely not attached to the floor itself, and it was like pushed off to the side. And as I was putting my foot on the flooring, like this, it was so sketchy, it was about to give in. And I have a 12-month-old son, um, and he just kind of figured out how to walk and then kind of do this run, a drunk run thing, you know, where he just throws himself in a direction and goes with it. Well, him at 24 pounds, like I believe that he absolutely could have just fallen right through the floor, right? But look, here's my point. Because I compromised, because I was cheap, because I had, you know, champagne taste on a beer budget, it could have had the very, the very real consequence for, for destruction and disaster. But listen, the same is true with us as believers when we compromise and give in to sin. You see, the thing about the enemy is he loves to get believers to compromise. And the way that he does it is in small little ways. Like you don't even know that you're compromising at first, right? Here, here's what Satan doesn't do. He doesn't run up to you with a big red pitchfork and, and a wicked smile and say, hey, do you wanna ruin your life with drugs and alcohol? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? No, he doesn't do that. He comes up and he whispers, hey, you're stressed. You've got a lot going on. You, you need to take a break. You need just like a quick escape. So here's a drink, here's a pill, smoke some weed. I know that makes you feel better. You, you'll calm down, you'll relax, right? This is how the enemy works. The same way he's not running up to someone with a pitchfork and saying, hey, do you wanna destroy two families by committing adultery? No, he doesn't do that. No, he comes up and he whispers, hey, I, I think that this is love. I think that there's something real here. And hey, it's, it's just sex. Like, don't, don't overthink it. This is the lie of the enemy. And listen, he's whispering to all of us and he knows exactly what to say. He knows where you're weak. He knows where you are insecure. He knows where you are tempted. And so whether it's through your phone, whether it's through a relationship, whether it's through a substance, he is going to put things in front of us to slowly get us to compromise. And this is not just true with us as individual believers. It's true of the church as well. You see, think about Satan when he was the serpent in the Garden of Eden. What, what did he tell Adam and Eve? He said, did God really say not to eat of this fruit. Listen, in our churches right now, we have leaders and people within the church that are looking at the absolute truth of God's word and saying, yeah, did God really mean what he said through scripture? This is dangerous. This can be deadly and destructive. And so where we see sin, where we see compromise, what do we do? What well, says, therefore, repent. And to repent means to change your mind. It's to recognize that Jesus is, is the greatest thing in our world. Everything else can and will disappoint. Repentance is more than just behavior modification. Oh, I'm sorry, I won't, I won't do that again. No, repentance is heart change. And this is where as believers and as churches we have to get to. Because if we don't, if we don't, Jesus tells us that he will war against them. 
Again, a reflection that he's gonna judge on the absolute truth found in God's word. It's a reflection of his perfect justice, but it's also a reflection of his perfect love that he's gonna come in and he is going to deal with the cancer and remove it from the community of believers so that it doesn't spread. See, we have to recognize Compromise is so destructive because God cares more about our joy than we do, and he has incredible rewards that he wants to give us. And it's these rewards that we see about as we close out our text. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus is saying, look, hey, listen up and listen with more than just your ears. Listen with your heart to the one who conquers, to the one who wages war, to the one who fights back the the, the kingdom of darkness, to the one who is putting sin to death, to him, to her, I am going to give incredible rewards. And he says three things, hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Okay, so hidden manna echoes back to language used in the Old Testament where, again, the nation of Israel is going towards the promised land, going to the land of Canaan, and there were times when they just didn't have food, like they didn't have physical sustenance. And so God would bring a bread-like substance down from heaven called manna to his people. So when the Israelites would get up in the morning, they would find this manna. They didn't know where it came from, who brought it, right? That's the reason it's hidden but it would give them everything that they need to be physically sustained. But here's the beauty about God being our hidden manna is that it is so much more than just physical sustenance that he gives us. Let's look in John chapter six, verses 48 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so again, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna do more than just sustain you physically. I am going to sustain you spiritually and I am going to give you the hope of salvation. This is what Jesus being the bread of life means. It's what we celebrate in communion when we drink of his blood and eat of his flesh, a reminder of what he's done on our behalf. Number two, a white stone. Okay, so scholars view this in a couple of different ways, but uh, one way of viewing it is that white stone is a ticket of admission. So in order to get into a festival or a banquet or a party, you would give them the white stone and you would get in. Okay, it's, it's where the language of blackball comes from. To be blackballed means to be uh, not allowed in, to denied access. Now, this is important for the church in Pergamum because they were constantly being rejected. They were constantly being pushed out. And so Jesus is saying, look, they might reject you, but I am inviting you into a greater feast, a greater banquet that we see in Revelation chapter 19. It's the banquet of the Lamb of God. It's an invitation and a token to admission, to experience his presence for all eternity. Another way of viewing the white stone 
is a sign of innocence. And I believe that for our context, this is what the Apostle John meant. You see, in Roman court, a jury, when they were deliberating on a crime, if they were to find someone uh, guilty, they would put down a black stone. If they were to find someone innocent, they'd put down a white stone, a sign of acquittal. Again, for the church of Pergamum, this matters because the whole city's persecuting them. The whole city's finding them guilty, but Jesus is saying, look, I find you innocent. And although they find you guilty here on this earth, you are bought back, redeemed, and forgiven, and that means you have a greater hope of eternity with me, regardless of what happens here on earth. And then finally, a new name. This is the name of Jesus that will be written on our white stones of acquittal. It is our identity, and it is an invitation for us to a community of believers and saints who have gone before us, who invite us in to uh, the hope of salvation and an eternity with them in the presence of God. Now, aren't these incredible rewards? Like, these are amazing. But here's the question I wanna, wanna ask us. What does Jesus, writing this letter to Pergamum, what does it mean for us as believers and Christians in the 21st century? And I think in order to kind of dig out the meaning and the application of that, we have to ask ourselves the question, are you a threat to the throne of Satan? Are you a threat to the throne of Satan? Remember, he's saying to the one who conquers, to the one who's fighting, to the one who's waging war against the enemy and his demonic forces, are you fighting? I think, I think a greater question that, that a lot of us wrestle with, is it, is it even worth the fight? Is it even worth the fight? Like, is it worth it laying down my, my, my sexual desires, right? Is it worth me laying down my addiction? Is it worth me laying down my relationships? Is it worth me laying down my finances? Is it worth me laying down the life that I think I should live so that I can follow Christ in the way I know that he is called to follow? You see, you have to think about these believers in Pergamum they were looking at the very people that could take their life and say, look, you might be able to take my life, but you cannot take the hope that I have in my King and my God, Jesus. You see, here's what I know. I know that for the church in Pergamum, in the middle of the fear, in the middle of the uncertainty, in the middle of the doubt, in the middle of them looking at the reality that their lives could be taken at any moment, that they were actually experiencing a supernatural sense of comfort and a supernatural sense of joy and contentment and happiness that only comes from a relationship that is alive and intimate with King Jesus. See, this is the relationship that he is inviting all of us to experience. And when you experience this, when you taste it, you realize that Jesus is the only thing that matters. He's the only thing in this world that truly matters. But to see the beauty of Christ, we have to see the weight of our sin. You see, here, here's, here's what we deserve. 
This was our reality, right? That because of our sin, that we would be separated from our creator, our God, our father for all time and endure suffering and pain in hell forever, except that is not our story. Because Jesus took on flesh and he came into our world and he surrendered his life on the cross to take the wrath of God on our behalf. And because he rose from the dead, he defeated sin, death, and the enemy. It means we have the hope of salvation. Like, I think we forget what this actually means. We have nothing left to fear in this world and everything to gain. You see, when you get that, you put down sin and you grab a sword and you charge the gates of hell and you're grabbing everybody around you to tell you, hey, there's a greater hope and there's a greater reality that is going on in our world all around us. Are we doing that? Are we conquering? It's why our mission at Crosspoint is to relentlessly pursue those far from God to help them know and follow Jesus. We will not wait. We have to conquer, we have to fight, and we have to wage war against the enemy. And I just wanna share this. I have seen the fruit of conquest take place right here in our own community. I am seeing people every single month surrendering their life to Christ. Some people who have been running from the Lord for years and years. We, as the church, witness dozens of people every single month publicly identify themselves with Jesus and say, look, I'm gonna follow him regardless of the cost. I'm seeing chains of addiction fall off of people who have been stuck like I was for decades and decades. I am seeing marriages that would have no other hope that everybody would say, oh, this was just gonna end in divorce. That's the only option, be restored, to be made whole. I am seeing prodigal sons and daughters come back home to their family and join in the battle against the war of Satan and his demonic forces. So for all of us, we have to continue to fight. And where we are compromised, where there is sin, we simply recognize the fact that Jesus is better. And we repent and we surrender our sin and say, God, I trust you with everything that I have. That is our call as believers. The stakes are high and we have to join the fight. So with that, let's close in prayer and ask for the Holy Spirit and his help. Dear God, uh, we're so thankful that you give us the hope of salvation. God, we can come in week in and week out and hear the gospel and almost become numb to our reality. God, that there is nothing in this world left to fear. There's no circumstance, there's no disease, there's no broken relationship. There is nothing that gets to take the, away the hope that we have in you, the joy that we have in our relationship with you, the peace, the contentment, the comfort, God, it's all of these things that I pray as a community of believers that we are experiencing as our reality and where sin has come in and distorted our view of the world, where our eyes have been taken off of you and your beauty and put onto the world. God, I pray that we would refocus, reorient our lives so that you 
are our only purpose. God, help us to hold fast to our faith. Help us to reflect the faithfulness of Pergamum right here in our own culture. God, we need your help. We ask for it today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.